Uh, Let's go ahead and turn our attention now to Philippians chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, it's wonderful to be among the people that were purchased by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and smile at one another and and shake hands and embrace and encourage one another. Lord, we're mindful, though, that behind the smiles and the uh, well wishes and the greetings and the encouragements that there are many in this room and many who can't be here today and perhaps are watching online who have faced grief, doubt, extreme temptation, disappointment, loneliness, and have struggled against sin over the last week. Lord, all of us come to you needy. We desperately need to understand who you are. We need to know you, and we need to understand what your word has for us this morning. And so I pray that you would open it up to us. Father, I want to pray in particular for Pastor Andrew and Carmen and Wesley James and Noah, as we prepare to pray over them and recognize God's call in their life to the city of Brevard, North Carolina, I pray that this, these moments in worshiping together would be one of the things that you use to fuel their endurance and their perseverance in ministry in the years to come. Father, we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. As a boy in 1992, I don't remember caring very much about the Winter Olympics. Aside from figure skater Christy Yamaguchi and speed skater Bonnie Blair, American athletes weren't all that successful, and frankly, skating didn't have all that much of an appeal to me if it didn't involve Eric Lindros, John LeClaire, or Rod Brindamore scoring goals and spending time in the penalty box. All that changed the following year, though. 
Because in 1993, for me and just about everybody my age, we were introduced to a fictional Jamaican bobsled team. Led by washed-up American coach Irv Blitzer and a serious-minded sprinter named Doris Bannock. It didn't matter to me that the connection between Disney's cool runnings and the real 1988 Jamaican bobsled team was tenuous at best. It was a funny and entertaining movie, and actually I looked up to the men in the movie. I was inspired by them, and even if I never joined a bobsled team myself, I wanted to achieve the kind of greatness that they modeled. I must have watched that movie a hundred times. In one scene, Coach Blitzer gets in an argument with Doris's friend, hilarious pushcart champion, Sanka Coffey. Sanka wanted to be great. He wanted to be the driver. But Coach Blitzer knew he didn't have what it takes. You see, Sanka, he said, the driver has to work harder than anyone. He's the first to show up and the last to leave. When his buddies are all out partying, he's up in his room studying pictures of turns. You see, a driver must remain focused 100% at all times. Not only is he responsible for knowing every inch of every course he races, he's also responsible for the lives of the other men in the sled. Now, do you want that responsibility? Some of you have that line memorized. Saga didn't want that responsibility. He wanted to be great, but the great ones in the world of bobsledding are the ones who put themselves last, who sacrifice and serve while their colleagues are out having fun, and, and, the, and, and they do that so that the team can thrive. Apparently, even Disney Studios in the 1990s understood that greatness is bound up in our willingness to serve, in our willingness to put ourselves last, in our willingness to sacrifice for the sake of somebody else. And yet how rare it is to come across a leader, a boss, a mother, a father, a coach, a teacher who is truly great, who truly serves. The ugly truth is that even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's all too rare to find someone with a servant's heart. Too often we follow the pathway of the world, of selfish ambition, of jockeying for power or influence in order to be great. And it has always been this way. Even in the early church, Christians, people who named the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, struggled against the temptation of the flesh to be great by the world's standards. But the apostle shows us a better way. Now, today is Andrew Carmen's last day with us. Uh, They're off to another ministry, and in a few minutes we want to have the chance to pray for them. So a lot of this message is going to be applied directly to Andrew and Carmen. But we can all listen in, I think, and glean because it applies equally to every one of us. The truth of the matter is that no matter who you are, God made you for a reason. God made you for a purpose. Yes, you. God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for your life. And he wants you to flourish in that calling. He wants you to be great And here's what Paul says in a nutshell. Here's what it looks like to be great. Be great in serving like your glorious Savior. Be a great servant like our glorious Savior. Be a great servant, Andrew. Be great Christian living here in Mineral Wells. 
In other words, it's not the accumulation of wealth, the wielding of influence or power, an elevated reputation, the respect of our community that makes us great. Greatness is not found in those things, but in the humble imitation of God's servant, the one and only Lord Jesus Christ. So for just a few moments, let's talk about what that greatness means, what that looks like, the glory of serving like Jesus. Notice that in our passage today, the apostle gives us essentially four movements. In the first place, he mentions the prerequisites of Christ-like servanthood. The prerequisites of Christ-like servanthood. Those of you who are students right now, you're thinking about prerequisites, right? Like which classes do I have to take now in order to be able to take the classes that I want to take in the future? Well, did you know that there are prerequisites for serving in a Christ-like way? Paul mentions four in the first verse of the chapter. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Essentially, each of these conditions refer back to what Paul has already said in chapter 1, and they're all tied in with the relationship that the apostle has with the Philippian church. Apparently, they were anxious for him, and for very good reason. Paul was living under house arrest in Rome during this time. He's chained 24 hours a day in a rented apartment to a member of the Praetorian Guard. Is awaiting trial, a terrifying and debilitating state of affairs. He doesn't know. He didn't know when he was going to be summoned, and he didn't know what the outcome of the trial was going to be. In fact, Rome had executed people for far less than what Paul was guilty of proclaiming Jesus as Lord and King. And yet, in the midst of that, Paul encourages the Philippians. He says, "What's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel." Like the mission is going forward in spite of Satan's best efforts to curtail it. And for me personally, it's a win-win situation because whether I'm released and I can continue to minister or I'm led to the executioner, whether by life or by death, Christ is going to be honored in my body. And, and, and that's what my whole life is all about. If I stay alive, I get to serve Christ. And if I die, I get to be with Christ because to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul says, doesn't that encourage you? Is there any encouragement in Christ? Are you comforted by the love that I have towards you? Aren't you my partners in the gospel? Even though we're physically absent from one another, we're participating in partners in the Spirit. Does the fact that I yearn to be with you all and that that affection arises from the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ fuel your spiritual life? In other words, Paul is about to ask them to do something that they do not have the power to do on their own. He's going to ask them to serve others, not through their own strength, but on the basis of a spiritual relationship that they have with him, with each other, and with the Lord. So let me put it this way. The prerequisite for living like Christ and serving others has to be a heart that is filled up and overflowing with joy because of the way that God is working in their life and loving them through Jesus Christ. You cannot be a Christ-like servant unless your heart is captured by the love of Christ and Christ's people. So folks, listen, you, do you want to know why we don't serve in the church? you want to know why we don't serve people in our families? Maybe it's because... We're so emotionally and spiritually dried up 
because we have gone so long without remembering and rejoicing in and reveling in the fact that we've been loved compassionately and completely by the Lord Jesus Christ. You can fake it for a while, but eventually people are going to see that you don't have the capability of seeing beyond the tip of your own nose. And it's because you don't have, you don't, you haven't experienced the compassion and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ because you haven't put yourself in a place to experience that. That's why we don't serve. You're not connected relationally to the local church. You're entertaining life-dominating sin patterns that consume your attention and your affection and kill your ability to rejoice in Christ. You're fanning the flame of desire for the things of the world. Life is all about money or pleasure. And, And if that's true of you, then it's all you can do just to avoid sin, then you're not going to be able to have the capacity to look out at the other people in the church, the other people in your family, the other people in your life, and say, I'm going to serve you. Andrew, there are going to be many times when you feel lonely and discouraged. The ministry will feel like a drudgery. You'll have ideas that aren't popular. Faithful members will move away. You'll be misunderstood. Those around you will see your frayed nerves, the shorter fuse, and you'll know that you need to find some peace. And the temptation is going to be, in those moments, our first solution tends to be to want to escape, doesn't it? To check out. To doom scroll and binge watch and stress eat, to obsess over sports or other hobbies or to turn to even more corrosive vices. But Paul tells us a better way. He he essentially tells us that we need to, when we're in those moments, we need to begin to tell ourselves a different story. Christ loves me. His heart is moved with compassion. There is a Savior who suffered in the present so that he might prepare a place for us in the future. Find encouragement in Christ. Find comfort in his love. Find people to partner with who have walked this path before in the Spirit. Lean into the compassion and the mercy of Jesus Christ. By, by the way, the flock that you're called to serve is going to need that compassion from you as well. They need affection and sympathy. It's a prerequisite to Christ-like servanthood. Folks, if we're going to be great, then that means being great servants. And if we're going to be great servants, then we must rest in the love of the Savior and his people. That's the prerequisite of Christ-like servanthood. But notice in the second place, the practice of Christ-like servanthood. The practice of Christ-like servanthood. Paul, in verse 2, pleads with the Philippian believers, Complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. According to chapter 1, there were literally preachers who were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, not because they love Christ, but because of selfish ambition, because they wanted to gain the upper hand. They were literally ministering out of their own selfish ambition. That is, they were actually envious of Paul and his influence, and they wanted to get him out of the way so that they could shine. And so there in Rome, Paul's languishing under house arrest, and these people are going around ministering in such a way so that Paul gets in bigger trouble so that they can get him out of the way and take his place. 
It makes no sense at all, but it's possible in the church of Christ to develop a culture of selfish ambition. And, and if you don't think it's a struggle here at Indian Creek, then think again. It's a struggle in every one of God's churches. It's a threat to every church and every Christian. We want to be the one calling the shots. We want to be the one getting the credit, right? When someone else comes along and questions us, we get a little prickly. We think, how is this impacting me? I, I hate to poke the bear, but one of the biggest ways that this shows up in local churches is through uh, the topic of music. Have you noticed this? Uh, one of God's most wonderful gifts. This is one of the, one of the joys of, of being in the local church, being able to sing together and worship Christ in music, and yet it becomes a source of contention and selfish ambition. We turn it into a way of asserting our rights and our preferences to a point where many so-called Christians, listen, would rather stay home then worship with God's people in a place where they don't necessarily like or are familiar with the kind of music that everybody's singing. Well, we did visit that church, but the music was too loud, or, or, or it was too slow, or I didn't know any of the songs, or I didn't like that one guy's singing voice. What does all of that reveal? It reveals that we haven't learned the lesson of this passage. You see, what Paul is talking about is a culture a culture in which when you're talking to somebody in the lobby and you're listening to what they have to say, instead of thinking about what your response is going to be, you actually pay attention and you listen to them. He's talking about a culture where, uh, uh, in which you're kind and gracious to someone even though you really don't enjoy meeting new people because you recognize that the way that you talk to this person may just be the difference between their uh, being encouraged in Christ and them walking away discouraged. He's talking about a culture in which you change your Sunday plans because your brother or sister in Christ needs a ride to or from church. A culture in which you don't rush past everybody. You stop and you stand and you show com some compassion because you recognize that this is a person valued by Jesus and therefore I'm going to value him too. And you look at God's people and you say, that person's important, that person's important, that person's important, that person's important. In fact, today, that person is more important than I am and I'm not just going to worry about what I have to worry about, I'm going to look out for them as well. That's the kind of culture Paul is calling for. Andrew, one of the things that I'm personally learning, and I'm learning it, is that that kind of culture has to start with the pastor and the elders. Listen compassionately. Be eager to honor. Find ways to be grateful for the work of God in the life of the church, and you'll find that over time, your Christ-like demeanor will free others to follow your example. Forget yourself and your goals and your reputation as much as you can. Give others the chance to shine as they use their spiritual gifts to build up the body. Don't worry about what other pastors in town are going to think or how many of the seats are filled. Tend the little garden that God has given you to cultivate. Love the sheep that God's led you to love. Let them know that they're important to you. Remember that Nazareth was a little place. Capernaum was no great metropolis. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a second. I'm nobody's doormat while I'm looking out for everybody else. Who's looking out for me? And, and that's a good question as far as it goes. 
But when we ask questions like this, the temptation may be to pull back a little bit, to serve but only so much, to put others first, but then wait expectantly for others to pay their dues. Let me encourage you not to do that. And the reason is because there's a very specific answer to that question. When you say, well, who is it that's looking out for me? Well, somebody is looking out for you, and he's shown us what his character is like. And and so Paul, notice with me, he not only gives us the prerequisites of Christ-like servanthood and the practice of Christ-like servanthood, but thirdly, he gives us the pattern of Christ-like servanthood in verses 5 through 8. The mindset, this mindset that Paul is calling us to embrace is the mind of Christ who according to verse 6 and following, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. These verses really mine the depths of a profound mystery, don't they? The Son of God, think about this, the Son of God, who is God, became the lowest of men, and by this obedient act of humility, earns this occasion for which he enjoys the worship that the prophets in the Old Testament say is reserved for only God alone. Like that Our brains can't comprehend these truths. We skip along the surface of these truths. We can't can't understand them completely. But but just because these truths are beyond our full ability to comprehend doesn't mean that we should relegate them to the realm of the academic. It's not an exercise meant to stretch our minds. This is an example that's supposed to shape our affections and our hearts. The exalted eternal word of God shed his divine rights, and became a baby. Now, babies, we all love babies, right? They're cute, but they're not particularly glorious. They do a lot of things that aren't necessarily that impressive. They can't even feed themselves. And then the Son of God grew up in Nazareth, and at the peak of his ministry, he didn't even have a place to sleep. And at the end of it all, he stood silent before all these false accusations and these wicked men conspired together to kill him. And he hung there naked in shame until they closed in and he felt the curse of God and was forsaken and alone and he breathed his last. By the way, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, please Consider the character of Christ. He is not like anyone else in the entire universe. The Son of God, who enjoyed all the glories of a million angels worshiping him for all of eternity, laid all of that aside to take your cross. His character is unlike anyone else. Clear away all the noise. Clear away all the opinions of other people. Clear away your impressions of the church or the traditions or the religion of people that you know. And just consider Jesus. Consider that he is utterly, unfathomably wonderful. Perfect in power, righteous, wise, and yet unsurpassingly humble. He laid aside all of his rights in order to suffer in our place, so he's absolutely trustworthy. You can trust a person like that. 
So when you read the Bible, here's where the rubber meets the road. When you read the Bible and you see things like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, or you were dead in your trespasses and sins, instead of bowing up and being proud and rebellious against these things, consider the character of Christ. Consider his humble, compassionate spirit and say, you know what, maybe he's telling me these things because he loves me and he wants me to turn to him and experience his joy for all of forever. Consider Jesus, turn to him and be saved. Recognize that the invitation to believe is coming from someone who is more humble and compassionate and selfless than anyone you've ever met, more glorious than anyone that you've ever known, more wise than anyone you've ever heard of. And please believe, believe in this humble, mighty, selfless, sovereign Savior. Believe today. Andrew, let Christ be everything. Never let the demands of ministry prevent you from knowing and loving Jesus personally. The need to reach out to the community, the counseling problems you'll face, the leadership challenges you're you're, going to wrestle with, the administrative minutia that's going to pile up on your desk, a thousand little cares and worries. If you're not vigilant, all those things are going to conspire to take you away and your focus off of the Lord Jesus. Remember Christ's desire for you expressed in his high priestly prayer. I desire, this is what Christ said, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. In other words, Jesus wants you, his desire for you is to see his glory. Today, with the eyes of faith, and then face to face. He he doesn't want you to be so preoccupied with the cares and the duties of pastoral life that you forget to know him personally and pattern your life after him. Be great. Be a great servant of our glorious Savior. Uh, And it's not for nothing that Paul admonishes us to live this way. There's a goal toward which this mindset is orienting us. Found in verses 9 through 11. Notice not only the prerequisites of Christ-like servanthood and the practice of Christ-like servanthood and the pattern of Christ-like servanthood. But fourthly, consider the purpose of Christ-like servanthood. Where is all this going? Well, the humility of Christ embodied in his decision to lay aside his glories and take on a lowly human nature and go to the cross becomes the occasion for his greatest exaltation. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Andrew, you know this, but not everybody does. Most commentators argue that the contents of verses 5 through 11 actually constitute an early church hymn, maybe even a hymn that the Philippian church was already familiar with. Uh, But the words of the hymn are obviously inspired by the language of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 45. And if you go back to Isaiah 45 and you read that entire chapter, you see this refrain repeated over and over and over again. God says through the prophet, I am God and there is no other And the end of the chapter, 
we're told that every knee is going to bow to him and every tongue will pledge allegiance. All other beings in heaven and on earth are created beings, but God is the only being who is uncreated. There can be only one God. That is fundamental to who God is. If there are two gods or more gods, then he's not God. Without the oneness of God, all the Bible's teaching about God disintegrates. And yet Paul tells us that when God says through the prophet, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance in Isaiah 45, 23, that this exclusive honor is reserved for Jesus of Nazareth. That is amazing that he would enjoy this honor not just by virtue of his identity with God. It's bestowed on him by virtue of his having humbled himself by going to the cross. So the most hated of all, the cursed one, the crucified one, by virtue of his having been crucified, has become the most feared, the most loved, the most obeyed, the most honored, the most worshipped by all creatures, including those who have never even believed in him. Yes, friends, there will be a day when even if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will bow the knee. He is Lord of all. And for those who love him, that is going to be a wonderful day. Because it's going to mean that what we see now with the eyes of faith is going to be visible to us with our eyes physically. Like we'll see what we've been believing this whole time. You want to know one of the reasons why we don't serve one another in God's church? Why we don't serve our neighbors? Why we don't serve the members of our family? Why we're selfish? Why we kind of... uh, make sure that our things are taken care of before we look at anybody else. Here's one of the main reasons why. It's because we really, in our hearts, don't believe that that day is coming. We hope it's true. We hope it's going to happen. We hope that the day is going to come when we'll be raised and, and taken up and caught up in the, into heaven uh, to be with the Lord forever. That we hope the day is coming when all the suffering and all the sickness and all the pain of this world are gone and we're able to live with God forever in the new creation. We're, we hope for the day when all the tears are going to be wiped away and death is going to be no more and, and God is going to serve us. We hope that that's true. But do we really believe it? I mean, we're hedging our bets. But just in case it's not true, this is what we do. We say, well, I better get everything I can out of this life because if it's not true, I want to make sure I haven't wasted my whole life. This is why we don't serve. Because we haven't really jumped in and believed that Jesus is coming again and that his day of honor and glory is certain. What I'm saying, Andrew, is that you have to keep believing, keep growing in your belief that a little self-denial here is worth it because you have the treasure of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to keep the glory of the Savior in your eye at all times. This might be the one thing 
that Satan tries the hardest to keep you from doing because he's going to do what he tried to do with Eve. He's going to take the desires of the eyes. He's going to take the desires of, of, of uh, the, the flesh. He's going to take the pride of possessions and he's going to make them look so beautiful and so wonderful. And, and he's going to make soul ministry seem so dull and you're going to have to say no to the pool of the present and yes to the promise of heaven. You might not find yourself awaiting trial in Rome but you're no exception to the rule the apostle lays out in chapter 1. And by the way, if you go back to chapter 1, this is for you too. To you, friends, it's been granted not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. And if you're going to be able to persevere, then you're, you're going to have to keep the goal in mind, the beauty of a glorious Savior who took upon himself the form of a servant and who even in his moment of glory will serve his people. People of God, if we do this, if we remember the character of Christ, and if we truly are looking forward to the day when we're able to be with him, then we'll be able to follow him in serving. We'll be able to put other people first. We'll be great servants of the Most High King. And so in just a few moments, we're going to share a meal with this king, a meal in which we have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, with the one who gave his body to be broken and his blood to be spilt for us. Christ serves us himself so that we might be in him and with him. And friends, listen, everybody look at me. As you prepare yourself for this meal, I wonder if the Holy Spirit is pointing out some ways in which you need to change. I wonder if there's a way in which you've been asking yourself, well, what's in it for me? Instead of saying, how can I serve? wonder if there's something that you've been doing to follow the world's path to greatness instead of following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that it's still Christ's desire, friend, for you to be great. It's still his desire for, for you to fulfill everything that he has planned for you. But it's going to take humility. It's going to take following his examples. And it's going to be, it's, it starts with saying, I was wrong. I want to be like Jesus. I've been looking out for myself instead of looking out for the people God has put in my life. I've been enamored with the glories of the present instead of looking forward to the glories of eternity. And I, that's the way that I've been. And I'm sorry. And I want to change. And I need the help of your Holy Spirit. And I need your compassion. And I'm asking you to forgive me and bring me back to the place where I stop following you and start me in the right direction. Maybe you're here today you're not a Christian. And, and friend, you don't need a ritual. You don't need to go through any kind of motions. What you need is to have an encounter, a real encounter, through the power of the Holy Spirit with the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to meet the Savior that Paul speaks about in this chapter. He is God, and there is no other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you might be saved. You need Christ. And so I want to encourage you to give your life to him today, today, not tomorrow, today, to truly believe in him. Let's go ahead and bow before the Lord now and prepare our hearts for the celebration of the Lord's table and to respond to the word of God.